Hello, City Light Church. Well, this has been a difficult week for our city and our country, and especially in light of the assault on black lives. So during this time, uh, for the next two weeks, what we decided to do was to interview a couple of our members. I think it's very difficult, especially if you're not black, to understand the black, black experience and what it feels like to be a black man in America. So we are going to be interviewing two of our men. The first one is Conrad Montgomery. He'll be sharing and I'll be interviewing him right now. I wanted to just start off by asking you about your experience of being black in America and what that felt like for you, some of the experiences that shaped you. Uh, there's nothing like it in the world being black in America. Uh, you know, in my 40s, born and raised here in L.A., and I knew I was different when I was about three, four years old. There's just something just different in the air, different with how people look at you, talk to you. Um, I don't know why. It's just something that's in me where I'm just very attuned to service or judgment or, or fairness. And it just seemed like I was automatically less than uh, waited on, put upon, was always like the last one. Uh, or got the worst of something, um, or accused of something, or was always had to defend myself, or had to be mindful of people being around me because their parents didn't want them to be in proximity of me, um, who I, who I could play with, uh, beyond my neighborhood because I was, uh, bust out of my neighborhood pretty early on for grades and that kind of stuff. So I was always just an other, uh, never fully accepted. I always had to work, uh, way harder. For the smallest modicum of anything, be it respect, uh, a wage, salary, grades, um, other people's respect, affection, um, or just general treatment walking down the street. Um, it's just always different. As, I, as I'm talking now, I'm, I've, I know I'm finding the right words so that I don't say the wrong thing. And that's part of being black, too. You cannot speak your mind. Not really. And people will say, well, it's just you. Like... You can trust me. I'm not like that. No, that's not true. Um, I am at your mercy. I have free will. I'm a thoughtful, uh, Christ-minded person, family guy. I work my tail off, and it does not matter. I am at someone else's mercy. And so when I can't have the life that I want to have, when I can't even fail, at, and I can't even chase a dream and fail, I, I can't have it. I'm not allowed to. And so those are things that being black, you have to figure out how hard can you fight? What's really worth it um, while you're trying to survive every day, um, while you're trying to figure out what happiness is, um, while you're trying to figure out what your path in life when constantly people don't want you to have it or you have to have a different version of it no matter what everyone says. Just go to school, have the best education, uh, treat everyone fair, you know, don't don't make any sudden moves, dress a certain way, live in a certain neighborhood, talk a certain way. It doesn't matter. Um, you're, you are bad. Uh, you are presumed guilty, um, and your innocence has to be proven. And even then, you're still guilty. Or we just didn't find it, but um, give us two weeks and we'll figure something out. Um, there's always a reason for you not to have what you want. And you're always dangerous. You're always suspect. Um, you're never going to be regular or, or be a human being like we are. 
And so, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And this is like a nine-parter. I can just keep on going. And I would say what's really was refreshing was anytime I've traveled and you get different flavors of racism and stereotyping and bigotry. But also, you get those moments of clarity where you see there are really people out there that do see you for yourself or they're just, and I hate to say it, but it's true, they're not as on you as others. For myself, there's a weight I carry every single day where it's like a prison from the moment I wake up and when I go to sleep. And even in my dreams, I I can feel it. And so when I wake up, the first thing I remember is like, oh yeah, that's right. I, I, and then this sadness comes in, this, this weight comes in, this darkness comes in, um, a whole other type of darkness, um, because of my darkness. And it's just a sorrow that even if I'm smiling, I am broken inside every day. It's like you, you have to be a Golden Globe, like, like, you know, Golden Globe, Tony, uh, Oscar award winner and Emmy to be black and, and survive because uh, nothing ever bothers you or gets you down. You make everyone happy. You think about everyone else when you come into a room. You have to be the the atypical perfect human. What's whereas uh, you're always on time. You're you always forgive everyone else's faults. Um, everyone always gets a second chance, not you. Um, and you always have to be on your p's and q's and perfect. You can never make a mistake. And if you're anything less than human, of course that's right. We forgot you're black. You're subhuman. It is the worst treatment um, I've ever been around or privy to. And uh, I've seen some bad things in my life of people getting hurt, beat up, um, just horrible things that is subhuman, not, not like against humanity, but somehow I'm less than that. Um, but when I do travel out of the country and the weight is just a degree lighter, it is like the world is a different place. That's how bad it is. That when it's just, you know, if it's 78 degrees and all of a sudden it's 77 degrees, it's like I need to put on a jacket. It feels, it's, it's so cool and refreshing and it's still horrible um, that I, get, I have to make those choices to, to live. Like how horrible will my day be today? And can I make it till tomorrow? Um, Yeah. Comrade, how can people who hear this be an ally to you, to other black people? To listen, um, reach out, uh, make the attempt be first, know that you're going to mess up and it's okay. Um, believe me, if you're not black, it sucks, but you're going to get a second chance. You'll get, you know, 32 chances and it'll just be like your first one. And that's, that is the good thing about uh, being on the other side is that you already have the benefit of the doubt. Uh, it may not seem like you have more resources and I'm, I'm white too. I have problems or I'm Asian and I have problems too. I'm Latino and I have problems. Yes, you absolutely do. That said, your whole life isn't preordained before you to where you, your best efforts it's, it's a minor variable. It's a crapshoot. And the house always wins. And you, and it's known you are not the house. But you are. And so you can change the rules because the rules work for you. Or you can live by the rules because they're made for you. And impart 
so kindness, empathy, uh, listen actively, um, don't try to me to it, and I don't mean that in any negative way uh, with the current climate. I mean to automatically put yourself like, I totally get where you're coming from. No, no you don't. No, you don't. Like, yeah, you may know pain and, and sorrow, but listen to what they have to say because we're feeling this 24-7, 365, and, a, and an extra day on leap year, and you have been given, and you're getting an audience with someone whose whole life is about misery and pain, and you are coming across as someone that you want to listen and learn for yourself to help them, then do it. Listen, uh, believe, um, you know, be mindful of the questions you're asking. Why did they do that to you? Um, well, no, oh, I can't believe that. Um, well, is it maybe if you just weren't so angry, just listen, uh, let them get it out, build a fellowship with them, build a dynamic with them so that they can trust you and they know that you are not out to harm them and, and you will get a more genuine, sincere, involved answer from them next time and the time after that and the time after that. That's called being a friend. Um, not an acquaintance, not someone that you could check off on a Facebook or your Instagram, but someone that you know so that when these atrocities happen, it's not just to a demographic or some that one person that you used to know in high school. This is happening to Conrad Montgomery at City Light. This is happening to Chris at City Light. You talked about a lot of the, the pain and the struggle. How does your faith help you in the midst of all of those things? Because I know there has to be something greater than this world. And there is. And he gave his life. And he came down and he kicked hell out. Because I'm a confident, <laughs> strong-willed, stubborn person who I think, if given the right tools and resources, can overcome just about anything. And the more I live this life... I know I can, I'm humbled by this. Even my best effort reveals all my flaws because the world is already pointing out all my flaws, even the flaws I, I didn't even see or I might not even have, I have to wear them. And there's a person out there who I know is the truth. There is a force out there for good that's done all the work for me. And he sees me. And it's through that, through him, and what I'm trying to gain by being present and more present in the church is a better understanding of that love and connection that he has for me. That's powerful. That's uplifting. And if that's happening, I can wake up tomorrow. I can I can try again tomorrow and be more resilient and carry that strength with me. Because I will get through it. Not because of me. But because there's a person greater behind me.
has to be, and I know what there is. Good morning, City Light. The scripture reading for this morning is from 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5, and verses 16 to 21. Please join me as I read the scripture. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for this morning. And as we gather this morning, our hearts are heavy. There's so much confusion and heartache. Thank you for the testimony of Conrad that we just heard. We do pray for him in the midst of all that he has experienced, that we could walk with him. We pray, God, that this word now would bring light and give us understanding of your will for us in this world. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, I want to thank Conrad for sharing just a moving story of his own life and his experience. You know, this last week as I walked through downtown, I got a chance to just walk through downtown in the morning. And as I walked through, it was like a ghost town. Stores are all boarded up, a lot of graffiti everywhere. So the National Guard rolling through the streets of downtown carrying very heavy machinery. And I thought how broken our city is. And I wondered quietly if there's any hope, not just for our city, but for a state or country that seems like it's in disarray. And this morning what I want to do is I wanted to talk about the story of God. And I and I want to see how it's going to zoom out from everything that's going on us, around us to see God's story that happens in the midst of conflict, of division, of darkness. And then I want to zoom in and, and see what that story, how it relates to us in this moment. Today I want to share a word from 2 Corinthians 5. And in this word I want to look at three things. Number one, the groan of this world. Secondly, God's work of reconciliation, that big picture. And finally, how God calls us to the work of reconciliation. Those three things. And I want to start with this idea of the groaning of the world. Today we're looking at 2 Corinthians. It is a, 
a letter written to a very troubled church in Corinth. Uh, it was a major cosmopolitan city. It was, it was uh, a city by a port that was a epicenter for trade. This church, though it attracted brilliant and talented people, was very troubled. That's why Paul's first letter to the church is very negative. It's a rebuke. Because this church, though it's filled with a lot of wealthy, successful people, was very troubled. It was divided. There are all kinds of divisions. There are all kinds of drama, of politics happening in that church. So Paul gives them a letter, which is like a warning. And apparently between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they received that as, as, a, as a word from God. And they repented. They changed. They were humbled. That's why 2 Corinthians, the tone is very different. It's much more pastoral. It's much more uplifting. Here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's been talking about, before he gives them a word, he, he talks about this groaning, this longing uh, that all of us have. In verse 2, he says there's a groaning inside all of us for our true home. And before he gives them this word of encouragement, he he empathizes with them. He talks to them how all of us, in some sense, have a longing in our heart. There's a groaning that things are not right. That things are not the way they should be. In Romans 8.22, Paul says that the world, creation, is groaning. It's an anguish. It's in turmoil. It's longing for something. In verse 3 of our chapter Paul talks about this idea of nakedness, that there's a sense of nakedness and wanting to be clothed. And that echoes Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, rather Genesis chapter 3, uh, we uh, picture the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they were naked. And they realized they're naked, that they're trying to get clothed. Why is that? Well, in the, in the first couple chapter, we learn that God... He has created Adam and Eve in this paradise. God called them to walk with Him and to live with Him. But what happened? What happens is the fall. The fall happens. Uh, Adam and Eve, they give in to the uh, temptations of the serpent. What does the serpent do? The serpent tempts Eve by having her question the goodness of God. Uh, the serpent wanted Eve to believe she can be her own God. And Adam and Eve listened to the lies, the manipulation of the serpent. And then, you know, the serpent is a symbol for the devil is continually doing that to us today. Misinformation, mixing truth and the lies, causing us to question the goodness of God and wanting us to be our own God. And as a result of Adam and Eve, Believing these lies, they eat from the fruit. They eat from the fruit that fruit of the tree that God had prohibited, and they all fall down. Everything begins to unravel after that first sin. Adam and Eve run from God. They also, they also, their relationship, their marriage is also destroyed. When God questions Adam about what happened, Adam throws Eve under the bus. He lays all the blame on his wife. We know that because of that, they were, they were uh, thrown out of the garden, out of their true home. They became, became wanderers. The earth became cursed afterwards. 
Adam and Eve have two sons and these brothers turn against each other. Out of jealousy, Cain murders his brother, Abel. It's telling what, what God says to, to Cain when he confronts him about that murder. In Genesis 4, 9-10, it says, And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Because of the fall, even brothers who are supposed to be tight and accountable to each other, they turn. Cain turns against his own brother. Murders him in cold blood. And God says that blood is crying out from the ground. Today we see the terrible sickness of racism. We hear the stories of our black brothers and sisters who feel that their lives, their body is threatened constantly. People are rightfully outraged over the death, the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And we see the, the outrage of that. And we see God's, God's outrage as well. The blood of these men and women also cry out from the ground. They cry out in anguish. How should we respond to these things? Well, the first thing that we do is we lament. You know, Paul, before he talks about uh, solutions, things that we should start doing, he first talks about groaning. He, He first empathizes with all the brokenness around him. And that's the thing that we do as well. In the Old Testament, this is called lament. Old Testament is filled with songs of lament. The Psalms, which are right in the middle of the Bible, are prayers. And most of the Psalms are actually lament. Laments are expressions of grief and outrage that we direct to God himself. And we lift up our lament, our prayers, our tears, our cries to God. And lament we sympathize with those who have been historically wrong. We weep for weep with them we empathize with their struggles in lament we surrender our own agenda lament is not about finding easy answers to complex questions lament is not about five simple steps to make things right sometimes when there are injustices we want to be quick to get to the solution like what can we do how can we make it right but if we don't First lament, a lot of things go wrong. First, our desire to help can come off as patronizing. We could go ahead of other, especially our black brothers and sisters who have already been leading the charge. Secondly, if we refuse to lament, our actions are not rooted in a deep understanding of the struggle. We don't really understand the problem, the plight, the heartache. We are not listening, we're not weeping, we're not slowing down. Third, when we refuse to lament, our actions become self-centered. It becomes about us and what we can do instead of about God and what He can do. Lament is always the first step. It slows us down. In lament, we empathize with the tears and the cries of the people around us. In lament, we slow down and we say, God, it's not me. 
And in lament, we start looking to God. We start looking for His hand and His power. And this is the second point, God's work. God's work of reconciliation. When you think about the problems of the world, they are overwhelming, especially when you look out at the city today. Think about the problem of racism. Uh, it, is it simply a problem of ignorance? Because if it is, well, we can educate. Uh, we can all come to a, a understanding and consensus. But the problem is more deeply rooted than a lack of knowledge. It has to do with the heart. It has to do with our desire, our hatred that is in inside of us. That's why we can't legislate a, away racism. We can we can legislate racist actions, but we can't le- legislate racism from the hearts of people. That's why we can't have laws that says you can't be selfish or prideful. Laws are important because they restrict destructive behavior. But laws cannot change someone's heart. It cannot humble. It cannot bring someone to change from the inside out. That's why, in addition to good laws, we need the power of God. That's ultimately what we need for change. We need Him to change us. We need His power to forgive us. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about this idea of reconciliation. It's the root of what God is doing. In his work, it says this in verse 18, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This word reconciliation occurs four times in these two verses. The idea of reconciliation is a political term. The background is this idea of two warring states, two warring parties that are at each other's throats. Reconciliation is the idea that there has been a peace treaty, that there's peace between warring parties. The real root of all of our problems is that God is our enemy. God is our enemy. You might have other problems in your life, But the biggest problem is when the almighty, righteous creator and king is at war with you, is at odds with you. The other thing about this conflict is is that it's a one-sided problem. Often in conflicts, when there are two sides and they're mixed, there are wrongs on both sides. But this problem that we have with God is one-sided. It's all on us. Think about how we have rejected God, how we have destroyed his world, how we have treated certain races and classes of people, how our world is so broken. God, the righteous judge, the king, think about how we have treated him by ignoring him and belittling him. So what is God going to do? God has to bring justice. God is a God of justice. It's intrinsic to his character. He must punish sin. He must give an answer to all of those wrongs. So what does God do? Instead of punishing us, it says in verse 14, He dies for us. God takes the punishment upon Himself. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a beautiful summary of the gospel. It says the gospel is that God made Jesus, he gave him all of our sin, the righteous one. He was given our unrighteousness. He paid the debt for our sin. And secondly, he gave us all of his righteousness. It's given to us. And all we need to do is believe. We need to, All we need to do is take that work, that peace treaty that God has given to us. And sign it and believe it. And when you do that, it changes everything. When the biggest, the biggest problem is that God is our enemy and God has solved that problem by making us his friends, by paying our debts, by giving us his righteousness. And when that big problem is taken care of, it does change everything. First, it, it changes how we view this life and how we can endure suffering. Paul described this. He, Paul's life was filled with all kinds of trouble. He was stoned. He was thrown out of cities. He was uh, harassed, bad-mouthed, spit on, imprisoned. This is what Paul says because he has the hope of the gospel. He says this in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 8 to 9. In 2 Corinthians, this is what he says. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul says that I encounter all of these awful things, but it doesn't destroy me. I have this hope in me. I have the spirit within me. I know that he's made everything right. You know, I was on a, we were, we had a men's prayer breakfast this last Saturday. And our brother Chris, who's going to actually share next week, was talking about how he was experiencing all this pain being a black man in America experiencing and being re-traumatized by all that is taking place. But he says the thing that gives him hope is that he knows that Jesus was an olive-skinned man who was also persecuted, beat down. All the forces of darkness was against him. He was slandered, oppressed, and at the end of his life he was lynched. But Jesus overcame all that. My brother Chris says that I know Jesus understands me. I know he understands my pain. And I know he overcame all of that. And that gives me hope in my life. The gospel gives us this hope, this strength, this power. In Colossians 1.20, it says that Jesus is not just reconciling us to himself, but he's also going to reconcile everything, everything in this world will one day be made right by Jesus. You know, in this world, there will always be gaps of injustice. There will always be miscarriages of justice. But the thing that gives us hope is this. It's in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. One of the things that Paul talks about is, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says ultimately everyone's going to have to give an account. Paul says that one day justice will arrive. Whether it happens on earth or not, one day everyone's going to have to give an account of their life and they're not going to be able to escape. God has 
HD, everyone's body cam footage. And he knows everything and he knows the motives and thoughts of our heart and our mind. And everyone will get justice. There is a true judge, a true king. And that tempers our anger. Doesn't mean that we can't get angry, but it tempers it. And we're given perspective that there will be justice. And my king will make everything right. The gospel, it is the center. It changes everything. If God be for me, who can be against me? God is working everything out. And ultimately, I know he will in the end. And you know, when you understand that, it doesn't end there. Here's the last point. God, the big story is God's reconciling us to himself. But here's the thing. When you understand that now God calls you to be an agent of reconciliation. That's the last point. Reconciliation is God's great work. It's a gift, but now he calls us to act on it. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. If you believe this, if you receive this gift of reconciliation, God now calls you to be an agent of it. Now Paul says, now we are ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. Remember that word reconciliation has a political backdrop. It's the context of warring parties. And now God says, you are ambassador for my kingdom. Now go out to all these people and offer them the peace treaty. Tell them God is no longer angry. Receive this gift of being right with God. Uh, when you receive this good news of the gospel, now we are called to tell it to other people. We are called to have them be reconciled with God. But here's the, the final thing. We're also called to reconcile with each other. And we're also called as a church to be one people of God. Reconciliation is not just getting right with God. But when you get right with God, the center, the big thing, we're also called to be right with other people around us. Just as God forgave us, we are able to forgive each other and to live and love each other. Here's the key with reconciliation. When the church gets right with each other, it's a sign to the broken world that they can get right with God. When the church is the church, it's a powerful witness to the world that is very fragmented. That's why the night before Jesus prayed in the Gospel of John, he prayed that the church would be unified. Why? So that the world would know that God sent his Son. In the first century, Jewish and Gentile Christians were very separate. That's why Peter, he just hung out with the other Jewish Christians. Gentiles ate separately. And Paul confronts Peter to his face and says, you're not living in line with the Gospel. You're not living out the Gospel. This is not right. In Ephesians, Paul says, God broke down every barrier that separates Jew and Gentile. And God has made us one body. One key vision for our church at City Light is that we desire to be cross-cultural. It's a key part of our ministry. We want to be a church that reflects heaven. In heaven, in Revelation 7, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people is together worshiping. 
And our prayer is, God, like that choir in heaven, let our church reflect that diversity of heaven. And when it does, it's a testimony to our fractured, racially divided city that God is alive, that God is real. We might not change the city, but we can be assigned to the city. And one of my hopes is that City of Light, that we can be a sign that in our church we would have beautiful diversity and not just that, but unity. It's one of the reasons why uh, throughout the next few weeks we're going to give space specifically to our black brothers and sisters to share their story, to share their heart, to listen to them. And we are called to empathize with them. To see life from their shoes. We're called to be a beautiful church during this time. And we continue to progress as we also, we confess our own sins. Specifically our sins of racism that is in our hearts. You know, as a church, one of the things that we do every single week is that we have a time of confession. We confess our sins. And that's what makes a Christian so unique. We're constantly confessing our sins. And it's countercultural, especially in this world that loves to project, loves to hide. We love to put on filters. And we love to condemn other people. You know, someone once said that Twitter is a platform for people to call other people to confession. We want to call other people out and say, hey, you're not, you're not doing these things. But a Christian first starts with himself. We're called first to confess our own sins, not just to God, but to each other. And I would encourage you to think about confessing your own sins of racism that is in your heart. Gospel gives us the power to unmask ourselves, to be real, because we know that when we're real, he loves us still. And I would start with myself. You know, I'm, I have racist things in my own heart and spirit. You know, and, our, and I know that it's, it's hard to admit because racism is such a bad thing, especially in our society today. But I can, I can confess that to you. I can remember times growing up when my parents would tell me, and specifically my grandmother would tell me, not to play with the black kids. You know, so when our brother Conrad talks about his experience as a young black boy and other kids not playing with him, I can say... I was a part of that. I was a part of that. I was a part of that system. Even now, when I see a young black man with a hoodie, there's some parts of me which I would love to deny, which feels unsafe, which feels guarded. I can confess that so much of my life I've loved black culture more than loving black people. And I can confess that. And I ask God for forgiveness of that. And I, I am a person, though, who is Asian American, has had so many privileges. And privileges is another name for grace. God's unmerited gifts. And I acknowledge that. It would be powerful if as a church we would start confessing our own sins to each other, sins of racism. Acknowledgement that so much of what we have has been given. And to also acknowledge that it's not good enough to not be racist. You know, the Bible says it's not enough that 
we don't do bad things, but it's also a sin when we don't do good things. Sin is not just not being racist, but it's also not being anti-racist. Is a is is being anti-racist is not fighting racism. We're called to be proactive in seeking justice. One person just simply summarized justice as loving someone in public. That's all it is. And we're called to be proactive as well. Will we start doing that in a church? You know, in the final analysis as we close up, we have to look to our king. We look to our King Jesus because Jesus was both justice and love. Jesus combined them both. And the place where those meet is at the cross, where he is so just and at simultaneously so loving. The love of Jesus is beautiful and wide. And in Jesus, all of our sins, including the sins of racism, can be forgiven. And God can heal us of that stain as we acknowledge it, as we confess it, as we seek to grow in our understanding. In Jesus, we find our unity. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian. Jesus is so great and so big that we can be surrounded by him. He's a big enough, great enough thing for everyone to unite in. And as we grow closer to him, we grow closer to each other. And finally, in Jesus, justice will come. In Jesus, justice will come. Amos says that one day justice will roll down like mighty waters. One day justice will flood the earth. One day this broken world will become like heaven. And so we can be people of hope. So this morning, let us lament. Let us weep. Let us cry out to God. And let us tear let our tears turn into empathy and love. Let it lead us to confession of our own sins, of our own indifference. And let us lead us into action that is guided by God's truth. And let us love each other like Jesus loved us. Let's look to Jesus. Let's rely on him so much. Let's hope in him. Let's be patient like Jesus is patient. Let's seek justice like Jesus seeks justice. And let us rest. Finally, if you feel tired this morning, rest in his grace. Rest in him. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks that you are so good. And we give you thanks that your grace is so great and big and deep. This morning, help us to rest in you. Some of us may feel tired, maybe from the struggle. Some of us may feel weary from this prolonged period. But give us hope that out of darkness of the cross came tremendous light. Fill us with your spirit. And I pray your spirit will lead us to grieve, to wait, to have patience. I pray that your spirit will unite your church. Lord, thank you for the beautiful diversity of City Light. Pray that it would continue to grow. Help us to learn from each other and help us to wait in you, on you. We know that you're not done. And so pray that we would wait for your unfolding story. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.